You're listening to the New Century Multiverse. Steamheart. Chapter 26. Close Encounter. Raoul. Today. I watch the clearing. Miguel is nowhere to be seen, but I can smell him. The creature I have come to know as a deer paces through towards the edge of the trees. Stops and sniffs, cocking its head. I hear the tiniest of cracks, and the animal is now rigid, searching about, uncertain whether to stay still and perhaps remain unseen, or break for cover. A tiny stone sails through the air and cracks against a tree. The deer bolts right into Miguel's path. He leaps clear of the branch he has been hanging from, dropping through the air with a graceful calculated arc. His claws come out and he brings his arm down, piercing its spine at the neck, severing the link to the central nervous system before it even realizes it has been wounded. He grips at his arm in pain. The effort of the kill clearly still hurts him. I spring down and approach as he rubs the soreness from his muscles and says a quiet, respectful few words in his own language to send the deer on its way. Yo soy venado. Lo siento. Necesitamos tu carne. Descansa ahora. Vaya con Dios. Something is wrong. I incline my head. What is it? I smell men and fire. They are not far away and approaching from two different directions. I sign to Miguel to climb on my back and grab the deer carcass with one hand, padding through the forest to our cave. Oh no. I smell more smoke. More men. As we approach the opening, I pause, still holding us behind the tree line. My nose twitches. There is someone in our cave. They are being very quiet, but I can make out at least five different scents. The oil they use to make fire. The tar that I have detected previously on their hunting and fishing nets. And I smell the smoky residue of their guns. Very slowly. I lower the carcass to the ground and leave it, backing away from the approach to our cave and heading through the forest, drawing us clear of the other men. Miguel hops down and signs as we walk. Where do we go? Away, I sign. Cave dead. Men? Men. So, where do we go? He asks again. Sorry. I think hard. It has taken weeks for the men to hunt us down. If we move on to a place where there are no men, maybe we can live there. New, New forest, forest, I sign. Okay. We find people? I, I hope, hope not. not. No, we should find people. He qualifies. Men, men too, too dangerous, dangerous, I retort. <sighs> Cat people. He expresses. His paw pads shake a little as he signs the whiskers and looks at me earnestly. My, My cat, cat people? people? 
Yes. They, they will, will kill, kill you. I mime, with exaggerated viciousness to make my point. They will kill you. I am cat people, Miguel insists. I consider this. The wooden snake rat mask propped up on his head, his claws, his armor, the green color of my tribe he has deliberately clothed himself in, and that last aerial attack he made upon the deer. No cub from my culture could be expected to achieve more than this, to be considered part of our family. Falling water, I say. Too, too dangerous. Ay, Dios mio. Snafflepig, he signs. This is a creature from my land, well-renowned for its cowardice and the comical squealing noise it makes as it retreats. Too, too dangerous. dangerous. Fall, Fall far, far, I say again. He makes a light, pathetic squealing sound. I stop in my tracks and we regard one another. If, if we, we die, die your, your fault. fault. I mine. <laughs> Deal. He signs. I snatch him up and throw him on my back and we bound through the woods. He is making that strange men sound again. They do it when they are happy or something is funny. It's almost like laughing, but far too loud. <laughs> the sun is set as I spring and rocket across the terrain to the riverbank. I do not care if we are seen anymore. We are returning to my tribe, and I am no longer frightened. If the fire lion is watching, he will surely bless us for our courage. As we near the great old boat, I know something is wrong again, and this time it is far worse. The boat is lower, and parts of it have collapsed, and I cannot hear the doorway in the air anymore. I spring up to the top, and the floor shudders and splinters. The structure cannot be trusted, and it may disintegrate in moments. I claw my way along, holding myself loose, sensing the stress points in the wood and bouncing on the stronger areas. Miguel clings to me the whole time, trying not to move and upset my steps. After the ordeal of traversal, we finally reach the hut where the doorway is. Or at least, the place where both of them were. All that is left now is a gaping hole in the floor, dropping down into water. The air is empty. A shock courses through me and my jaw drops. Mikkel makes gasping noises and looks about him. Our way home is gone. The wood beneath us gives way with a snap and I spring sideways, bouncing and pivoting off the rail as it collapses and launching us out back to the land. We touch down and Miguel drops to the ground. He signs. Where? I hold up both paws and hunch my shoulders in effigy of what he does when he has no answer. By the gods, we really are lost now. An ascent I have been trying to shut out in my desperation to get back to Rama now makes itself known. I had stopped caring for the briefest of moments whether we were seen in the open. And now a gargantuan beast looms over us in the gathering dark. Steam billows from its back. I smell oil and fire. There is a snapping sound, and its eyes light up, bathing us in an amber glow. Time slows in one breath as we stare down this behemoth, readying for the end.
men, both of the male and female kind, are emerging from the belly of this beast. They shout in their strange words across at us. I can smell guns. I draw my fighting spears, but Miguel steps in front of me and says a word in his language that I understand, loud enough for everyone to hear. Stop! From the travel log of Raven, Tennessee, July 4th. Before us stood a being we knew to be from another world. The tiger, clad in leather armor, shifted its weight and prepared to spring, hefting enormous blades of sharpened bone. Detente! The boy cried out in Spanish, his eyes wide, attempting to see us through the headlamps. That'll be the monstrous lion of Memphis, then. If this doesn't work, aim for the cat's eyes. I'm ready. Chico! Oakley shouted. Hablas Espanol! Si. Puedes controlar este gato? Oakley continued, asking about the tiger and whether the boy had control over it. Ella me escucha. Dile que baje los machetes. At this suggestion from the captain, the boy turned to his companion and mimed the putting down of the weapons. The tiger growled at him and gestured at these other humans, forming pointed fingers or paw pads and extended thumbs around the handles of her blades. The boy turned back to us. Ella dice, deja tus armas. She wants us to put our guns down. Oakley breathed. Gray stepped out of the cover of Steamheart where she had been ordered to remain and very deliberately held up her shotgun pointed skywards before placing it on the ground. Abby, back inside. Look at the size of her. Gray whispered to us all. She's bigger than a grizzly bear. And at this range, your best bet with a grizzly would be to file down the foresight on whatever gun you're holding. That way, when the bear takes it off you and shoves it up your ass, it won't hurt as much. The tiger pointed her blades at Oakley and Butler and gave them a vigorous shake. Okay, you're right. Oakley admitted. Together. Then to the boy she called out, Juntos. He nodded in agreement and made a circular motion with his hand to his companion. Slowly, the weapons were lowered to the ground. No queremos lastimarte, Oakley said, putting honest compassion in her voice this time. Queremos ayudarte. At the offer of our help, the boy entered into an elaborate, nonverbal conversation with this great cat, who was very wary of us. Can you speak any English? Gray called out. Oakley turned angrily and held a finger to her lips. But the boy had already responded. Yes. Well, can we talk then? Who are you people? We're with the Reunified States government. We weren't looking for you. Okay, what are you looking for? Doors in the air. As soon as this was translated, both of these newcomers became agitated. There was one on the boat. Oh, shit. Gray murmured quietly. Our whole group began to realize what had happened, and the newcomers picked up on our comprehension. You saw it? We... I... closed it. The boy frantically mimed closing with his hands, no longer even looking at the cat. Please open it again. I'll try. 
Grey stepped out past the tiger towards the shifting wreck of the Natchez. She held up both hands and braced her legs. We watched her push and strain and work at the air, fruitlessly for several minutes, the tiger pacing around as though caged in a zoo. Grey's shoulders slumped and she turned back to us. <sighs> Nothing. It's like that door was never there. May I? asked Dr. Penrose, who had been watching this. Grey nodded and they switched places. Penrose took off his eye patch and studied the area. Then, as with his partner, he spent a while gesticulating and throwing out his hands. Eventually, he turned and walked back to the rest of the group. Did you feel or see anything? Fingerprints in the air. A million or more. But as always, I can't do a bloody thing with them. Did you at least see where the door had been? Maybe there was like a, a purple scar. It was akin to trying to find an individual bubble in a glass of soda water. He muttered, then turned to the boy. I'm sorry, young sir, but neither of us can reopen that door tonight. The pair became distraught and began signing back and forth again faster than any of us could interpret, though the essence of the discourse was that we had locked them out of their home. <laughs> Agent Pine stepped forward and spoke to the boy. What are your names? I'm Miguel Alejandro Delgado. This is Harau. Harau? Harau. Harau? Harau. The tiger said, in a growl which made everyone jump. Miguel, I'm Jeremy. Pines was attempting to keep his visible excitement under wraps. He was failing. Me and my team would very much like to help you get that door open again. Or another door, if we can. James and Abigail here are working with, uh, probably the best way to describe it is magic powers. Okay, yes, but they're not very good with them yet. <laughs> you catch on fast, thank you. But we are hoping that on our journey they will learn how to use this magic. Delgado pointed at our transport. What is this thing? She's Steamheart. Arlington stepped forth from the hat she'd been peeking out of. Like a horse's carriage powered by fire. We're on a long journey across America. Do you want to come with us? Butler spoke. You can tell us about the place you're from. She's from. I was born in Puebla, Mexico. I'll bet there's a story in this. Oh, yes. The boy's eyes narrowed as he surveyed our group. Who is in charge here? You? He pointed at Gray. I am. Said Oakley, stepping out in front. And you are Reunified States Army. That's right. Then... The boy stood straight and saluted. I am Private Delgado. I was taken against my will from my first military procession into Arkansas by my also newly enlisted father. I do not want to be a deserter. I can offer you the information you seek on the land she came from in exchange for both safe passage back to that world and an honorable discharge for me. Oakley blinked. You've got some sharp negotiation skills. How old are you? It's still 1883? Yeah, July 4th. Then I am 12 years old. I missed my birthday in June. We were in the woods. Gray pointed over yonder towards the city of Memphis as the first fireworks of the night were beginning to climb up into the sky, bursting into red, white, and blue spark showers. Happy birthday, Miguel. 
The tiger flinched at the sight of these distant explosions, but the boy signed to her something to the effect that they were a good thing, which put her a little at ease. All right, kid. That's more than fair. But ask Crow here what she thinks. Can she trust us? Tell her we think she's absolutely beautiful. Magnificent. Arlington added. Agreed. Oakley stepped up. We are sorry we pointed our guns. You startled us. There was a long exchange of gestures as the cat paced around, increasingly agitated, until she threw her arms up and gave a growling roar. She says we haven't much choice. Delgado expressed to us. Not true, said Oakley. We can leave in Steamheart without you. Turn around and continue our mission. If we figure out how to open a door, we will drive to this place on our way back. You can wait for us here. It could be a few weeks, though. Delgado glanced around and then shook his head. No, we'll come with you. But can you bring us back here, as you say? Of course. Will she fit inside your machine, though? I think so. Butler waved for them to follow him. He led us all to the back of Steamheart and opened the hatch that led into the recently vacated horse box. Does she mind sleeping in there? Te importaria dorme ali. She says it will do, said Delgado after another exchange. Are we leaving immediately? No, we don't travel by night. Right now, we're just going to set up a campfire, watch the fireworks. Sound good? Do you have food? Plenty, although she's going to have to hunt her own down the road. We didn't allow for giant carnivores on this trip. We can do that then. As he said this, the tiger turned and held out a giant paw to Oakley. The captain was a little taken aback. This thing could have ended her with a single blow. However, she recognized the gesture and cupped her hand around the warm internal pad, shaking it up and down once. Hurrah! then proceeded to awkwardly do the same with the rest of the crew. Is that her custom? I asked the boy. No, it's yours. You have been listening to episode 26 of Steamheart. Claw's Encounter, written and directed by Alexander Shaw. Harau, performed by Maureen Foley. Annie Oakley and Harry Arlington, performed by Loretta Saylor. Miguel, Raven and James, performed by Alex Shaw. Jeremy Pines, performed by Matt Wardle. Abigail Gray, performed by Sharon Shaw. Frank Butler, performed by Spencer Lieb. Where the West Begins, composed by Ferenc Hegedus of Shockwave Sound. Agent in Shanghai, composed and performed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Black Vortex, Himalayan Atmosphere, Frozen Star, and Ossuary, composed and performed by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you too. Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco. Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, 
Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron LeCluze, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisham, and a new $15 patron, Greg Doge. A few weeks ago, at the end of the credits, I mentioned a scenario with Butler and Pines in bathtubs. I have now written and recorded that scene, and it will be instated into an updated version of Chapter 22. But, to save you re-downloading it, here is that scene in its entirety. This took place on the night that Abigail dragged Annie, Raven and Harry to the Diamond Bell. From the Journal of Frank Butler, Memphis, Tennessee, July 3rd, 1883. Jeremy Pines and I lay luxuriating in two copper bathtubs within the semi-palatial upstairs spa of the Memphis safe house. I was already missing Annie, who would have lit up like a Christmas tree over the opportunity to pamper herself the way we were doing. But I suspected Jeremy was missing Donald a whole lot more for their many months apart, As such, I let Jeremy do what Jeremy does, namely talking my ear off about what fascinates him. It was when he touched on the subject of a unicorn in Iowa that I took notice. And how many people from the town saw it? I asked, bodily sitting up amid the soap bubbles. Just one family of six, he replied. They were on a picnic near Des Moines, and it came right up to their checkered blanket. It was black as night with a white mane and it demanded a sandwich. You're fooling me. Swear to Yahweh. At least that was what was in the cartographer's report. Did they give it a sandwich? Him. It was definitely a him. And yes, they gave him what they had. Roast beef, apparently. He asked for lemonade, then complained it was too sour and cursed. He cursed them? No, cursed at them. Called them a bunch of wankers. What's that supposed to mean? The cartographer figured that was a unicorn word, but Donald uses it quite often. It means... Obstinate idiots. Then what happened? The unicorn made them scrape the gooseberries off their cheesecake. Then he took it, disparaged the man's taste in shoes, and walked back into the forest. Nobody ever saw him again. Jeremy, I have been grossly misinformed about unicorns. That was actually the first report we ever got that didn't just concern the Wendigo. That's why our department changed its name from the DMP. We realized we were dealing with a lot more than we could quantify with our previously established facts. I sat back in the tub and marveled at the idea of this strange beast. Such a corruption of the purity I had always associated with those noble animals. I kind of wanted to meet this one even more. Now that Jeremy had given me food for thought, I figured I'd repay him with my experience of a town where no person was permitted to look another in the eye. Less than a minute into my story, he had grabbed a notebook and was scribbling away furiously with wet hands. It was relaxation of a kind for him. He recharged by doing what he loved. 